Okay, here we go. And a one, a two, a one, two. Welcome to the latest in our series of Beyond the Expected, the Coronavirus Effect podcasts. In this special edition, we'll take a close-up look at the healthcare professionals who are on the front lines every day caring for patients in this great crisis. We'll talk to two of our doctors who contracted COVID-19 but are thankfully well on the road to recovery. And we'll also talk to an epidemiologist who has an insider's view on the hospital incident command system in addition to that expert's view on what we can all do to protect ourselves as patients, providers, or as healthy individuals as the recent surge in cases continues to challenge all of us here in New York. Let me introduce our three guests who have a unique inside perspective on all of this. I'll introduce myself. I'm Michael Bernstein, the interim president here at Stony Brook University. Very grateful to have the participation of our three colleagues today. We have Dr. Susan Donnellan, who has dedicated her career to studying infectious disease and epidemic pandemic preparedness and has made and shared impressive breakthroughs in this field. She developed an Ebola care plan that's adaptable for patients with other diseases, and she has certified training in pandemic planning and preparedness. She wrote a bioterrorism preparedness program plan for Stony Brook University Hospital. In addition to so many other roles in the critically important field of telehealth, uh, another guest, Dr. Kimberly Noel, serves as Director of Stony Brook Medicine Telehealth, as well as Deputy Chief Medical Information Officer for Stony Brook Medicine. Just as many of her telehealth initiatives were taking off, Dr. Noel contracted COVID-19 about four and a half weeks ago. But she's with us today, fully recovered and symptom-free, and she'll share both her professional and personal insights and her strong passion for telehealth and why it's so critical today in the midst of this crisis. And finally, as manager of our surgical intensive care unit, Dr. James Voswinkel is incredibly knowledgeable and experienced in all aspects of trauma care. This expertise, of course, is being called into action now like never before. Voss, as he's known to us, has been right on the front lines providing care for patients with the most severe cases of the coronavirus, as well as acting behind the scenes to help ensure we have the capacity and equipment we need to address the patient surge, including directing the setup of additional ICU intensive care unit capacity. Like Kimberly, Voss will share with us what it felt like to contract COVID-19, as well as what he's been doing to keep our ICUs fit for purposes under the most challenging of circumstances. I want to thank all three of you for being with us here today. And let me start with Voss. Um, according to uh, your colleagues in the emergency department uh, who reported this in the New England Journal of Medicine this past week, the first so-called PUI person under investigation was seen in the Stony Brook ER on February 7th. Since then, 3,500 patients have come through our emergency department. Why don't you take us back to February 7th and give us a sense of what it was like in the early uh, days, the early days of this COVID-19 siege and how it's evolved since here at Stony Brook. Absolutely, Dr. Bernstein, and uh, thank you for having us today. We do really appreciate it. Thank you. <clears throat> um, Back on February 7th, when it started to unfortunately be a concern in the area, I would probably say that's when we began our period of watchful waiting. You know, there was obviously concern that it could take hold in our area. Um, at that point in time, the majority of cases and community spread are obviously outside of our country and around the world. Personally, about two weeks later, when we heard that community spread had started in Italy, I believe it was over a weekend when it went from about three patients to over 100, as, as I think when I became a little bit more concerned. Um, fortunately, we have such a great team here at Stony Brook that as things progressed, uh, we put uh, all sorts of um, special committees, emergency preparedness in place. So as the virus started hitting our area, we were ramping up our efforts to deal with it. So I, I think it was an incredible response. I think it was... Um, very heartfelt how the community has come around us. So as things have elevated up, you've seen how everyone has really stepped up to their best to really fight this disease. Indeed. Um, let me just follow up on something you just said, Voss. So uh, watching the numbers in Italy yourself that weekend when you saw the spike, you know, from single digits to over 100, that 
that was your moment of clarity, as we say, where you said, this is really a serious problem we have on our hands and we'd best get ready for it? Correct. I was actually at the diner with my family on a Sunday morning <laughs> and they, they had CNN on and, and, it, and it popped up. And uh, that, that was when I got that, uh, you know, that bad feeling in the stomach, like, OK, we have community spread definitely outside of China uh, and other countries. And um, it's probably, unfortunately, really a matter of time before it happens here. So, you know, that's when it hit home more for me personally. Um, fortunately, as I said, our institute was prepared it stepped up in a proportional fashion as the disease progressed, and we've provided a very high level of care throughout. It's it's it, uh, prescient on your part in that uh, in that diner too, because we now know that a big part of the vectors here in the states came from Europe, not from Asia, right? Uh, Correct, absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's really striking. So, um, let me ask you directly: uh, When did you realize that? Uh, or suspected that you had contracted COVID yourself, uh, were you experiencing the same kind of symptoms we read about in the in the news? Was it something unique? I, I know our listeners and viewers want to hear about your experience in this regard. Absolutely. So um, it was really three and a half weeks ago. Um, it was uh, Friday night um, when I had gotten home and I started with the dry cough. Um, I had a headache previous two days, but, you know, as busy as you are, a headache is, is obviously common. Uh, after the dry cough uh, by about two or three o'clock in the morning, I started with the typical body aches. And right, right there, obviously, my concern went up. Um, took my temperature multiple times throughout that night. In the morning, I was fine. It wasn't until the next day that I started to get a low-grade a low temp. At that point in time, I was fortunate. I came home to our P-Lot. Uh, I was tested. Um, I stayed with the malaise and the, uh, the fever throughout that next 24 hours. And then I got a call from the Department of Health uh, that Sunday afternoon that I was positive. Just to remind remind our listeners, viewers, we have a testing facility at our so-called P-Lot, the big parking lot on the south side of the campus. So you had gone there to get your Correct. initial test. Correct. And listen, as being a, uh, you know, a patient in there, I, I can tell you the setup is top-notch. It's an outstanding resource for our community as well as individuals. It is done very professionally, very expeditiously. And I found it, you know, obviously in a very unfortunate time to be a very reassuring resource how quickly things were processed and went through. So uh, uh, you got the news uh, from from the Department of Health, and, and then what happened? Then I uh, returned to our emergency department. I had all the appropriate lab work done, you know, and the workup from that perspective. Um, over the next uh, probably about three to four days, uh, my fever abated. Uh, the aches persisted and got somewhat better. And then, unfortunately, somewhat classically, around day seven is when uh, sort of the bottom fell out a little bit. Um, my predominant symptoms at that point in time were just uh, – very heavy malaise, body aches, uh, to the point you really sort of couldn't get out of bed, uh, that your typical pain relievers, such as acetaminophen being Tylenol, um, really weren't relieving them. Uh, several days later, the uh, shortness of breath kicked in, along with the malaise. I had some GI symptomatology throughout. I believe actually several days earlier than that, I lost my sense of smell. So I, I kind of followed the whole textbook case. Sort of the standard, what, we, what we're reading about in the, correct. In the press. Correct, correct, I did. And I was very, you know, I was fortunate. You know, as I said, I did a lot of good things, obviously being a caregiver um, throughout, knowing what to do, you know, keeping ourselves hydrated, uh, using zinc and uh, vitamins, uh, making sure I walked around, positioning myself. Um, I had picked up a, a finger pulse oximeter, and I was able to take my oxygen levels throughout and know, even though I was short of breath, that my oxygen supply was good to my body, the amount of oxygen I was getting. Um, and obviously, as I said, I was able to stay at home. Um, right. I did, unfortunately, give it to my entire family, <laughs> which was, you know, really nothing I intended to do despite trying to take the appropriate precautions. Um, my children did, you know, well with a mild course. My wife had a course for about six days. So we really did fall into the appropriate demographics of my 13-year-old, 15-year-old, 17-year-old having very mild courses. My right. wife, who's my age, having a milder course than me, and myself being, a, you know, probably a little middle-aged uh, hypertensive, uh, with, you know, which is a comorbidity associated with, you know, more severe disease, having more of a higher disease level. And, and um if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, at least the reports have indicated men are men are struggling more proportionately than women with this. Correct. So um, it really did hit me how the demographics show. Right. You know, as I said, but um, doing things at home, you know, walking around, laying on my abdomen sometime, called prone positioning, 
keeping myself hydrated, uh, even eating when I didn't want to, making sure I got right. some protein into right. me. Right. Uh, those are the advice I would give people at home because, you know, those basic type things go very, very far with this virus. Well, uh, needless to say, a blessing that you and all of your loved ones are now are now safe and well. Uh, Dr. Noel, uh, you too uh, came down with the coronavirus. So why don't we we bring you into the conversation? Why don't you tell us about your experience? Then I have a, a question for both of you and a follow up. But please share your story with us. Sure. Um, just as uh, Voss had mentioned, in terms of um, original presentation, I really started feeling muscle aches and chills, uh, which was not at the time really recognized. I was, um, you know, working in employee health. We were counseling a lot of employees to look for fever, shortness of breath, cough. I never manifested cough. Um, oh. It was actually a Monday that we run our monthly telehealth work group, which is a quite large consortium of stakeholders that, you know, deliberate on how we're going to roll out telehealth. We had this large virtual meeting, and right after the meeting, I just felt this wave of um, just fatigue and chills. And um, if there are other doctors or clinicians who are out there, uh, doctors make the worst patients, right? We're, we're pretty tough um, and not wanting to admit that potentially, um, you know, we're susceptible like other people. And so I kind of, I knew I had, a, I had to I self-isolate, um, but I hadn't manifested fever. And so um, thankfully, we were doing all of our ro work remotely, um, but that night, it was uh, just really impossible for me um, not to lie down. I was still typing on my computer. You know, we're planning for a rapid surge of telehealth, uh, still making my meetings, but it was harder and harder exhausted. for me to function. Yeah. And so uh, the very next day I was able to get tested and, um, you know, it took a, a while. It took uh, about seven days for me to get my results. To get the results. But I knew that I had to isolate and, um, and so I was able to stay home and stay safe and thank God, um, didn't require any hospitalization. I, um, really was just, again, taking, trying to, to, uh, take advantage of supportive therapy, vitamins, hydration. Um, but I think that my course was really prolonged because I wasn't resting. Uh -huh. Um, so it took me about a good two weeks, uh, to become asymptomatic where I could then re-engage with the outside world. Return fully. Yeah. It was so glad you've recovered. So you, you've alluded to something I wanted to ask you, and I'll, I'll also ask Voss to chip in. Is it true that, in fact, you physicians are the worst patients, and why is that? <laughs> we are. <laughs> well, I also blame it on being a man because, you know, we ignore everything. Yeah, men are terrible patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. I, I got two strikes against babies. me to start. We're all babies. Um, obviously, it's never good. Is it that we know too much and we have a fear? Is it we tend to ignore things? Uh, is it um, whatever it may be? But I would say in general we do. Um, we're not necessarily the best patients. So uh, from that perspective, as I said, this is something that I advise all health care professionals, everybody, to obviously take seriously. Um, it's something that if you manage it right uh, and with our healthcare system in place functioning as well as it is, um, you know, we will get people through this. So uh, if you do notice the symptoms, please, you know, um, take them seriously. Dr. Noel, would you agree? Yeah, I, I think um, there's not a time um, to be um, to be tough in that you ignore symptoms. I think it's uh, completely appropriate to um reach out, especially if you're having a hard time dealing with symptoms um, emotionally. I think that doctors do uh, interface with some of the most severe cases and not all of these cases are severe. So I was very reassured. Uh, there is the curse of knowing too much. Right, right. And, um, but on the other hand, um, you know, I knew also the CDC guidelines and, and that I had to check my temperature and it was really the temperature my high fever that made me eligible to get tested at the time. And right. so I right. think um, we do follow the rules, but we do, <laughs> <laughs> we're not always easily uh, able to rest and right. step right. back. So let me, let, me, let me draw you, Dr. Noel, into, into some comments about your professional role. You have been one of the you know, leaders, advocates, innovators in the telehealth field um, for Stony Brook well before this emergency, you know, descended upon us. Now, of course, with the pandemic uh, 
you know, upon us. There's been a huge surge in activity in the telehealth uh, arena. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? This is something you've been advocating about and leading about for so long, and then suddenly you're at the, if you will, you're at the bow of the ship uh, um, leading us in this uh, transformation of healthcare. Absolutely. I mean, no one could have done the job better than coronavirus in prioritizing digital innovation. Um, we know medicine suffers about 17 years lag in terms of technology and adoption of, um, you know, best practices in terms of tech. And when we face a pandemic, we realize how important it is to catch up to the rest of the world. And what we're accustomed to as consumers is not always the case when we have to mobilize resources quickly in the public health sector um, and in, in hospital systems. So I think we now understand uh, the value of telehealth and remote patient monitoring, um, and there's more work to be done. I believe that just the fact that we have bipartisan support at this time to roll through these, um, you know, congressional and then Senate and then signing into law um, telehealth uh, supporting funding right. and um, prioritizing this from a policy angle as well as seeing state support. There's not one person who does not see the value right now of telehealth. And Are now there, the case is to augment that, optimize that, and make sure that it sticks. Right. Uh, it, are there particular um, innovations or advancements that you think about now as being crucial in the context of this pandemic? Or is it what you expected? Any surprises for you? Absolutely. I think right now we have to think about our most frail uh, community dwelling um, elders or persons with disabilities who are not easily able to manage right. video. Um, we, we need more data oftentimes. You know, a physical exam can include heart, you know, evaluating, auscultating the heart, listening to heart sounds, lung sounds. These are things that can be done also digitally with remote patient monitoring and with advanced Bluetooth stethoscopes, for example. So the technology is out there, but the challenge now is to be able to get those technologies quickly enough and implement them into how we do, you know, how we practice medicine. Right. Um, you know, last week we we had a, a podcast with a couple of colleagues who were also in the, in a very similar space, Catherine Duffy, who runs our so-called Healthier You uh, program, Christy Golden, the Associate Director of Operations for Stony Brook Medicine, and uh, Adam Gonzalez, the Director of Behavioral Health. We talked a lot in that podcast about telehealth, telemedicine. Um, I'm curious what you are hearing. We talked a little bit about this last week, too. What are you hearing from the community? What do you hear from your patients, as well as your colleagues, about the, if you will, the pros and the cons, the the good and the bad of, of telehealth? Well, you know, telehealth is an absolute need right now. Um, so there are people who cannot see their doctor at all unless they uh, get on video. Um, so there is that sense of urgency and patients expect the ability to be able to use these technologies. We do see a divide between people who are easily, easily able to adopt to change um, and try new apps or new ways of doing things. Um, but the sheer necessity has created a large group of fans. Um, I think we still have work to do in terms of making it as seamless and easy as possible as other consumer experiences. That many people know how to just click and buy something on Amazon, but to right. be able to get your lab tests or be able to uh, follow up on uh, your important medical needs are still challenges that we're working hard to address every day. Yeah, th uh, these are very important points. You know, we think about this a lot at the university with respect to online instruction about differential access to technology, to simply to Wi-Fi networks, uh, let alone equipment. Um, I also was struck by your comment earlier that um, COVID-19 has uh, done more than anything we can think of in, uh, you know, propelling the digitization of our of our society, and it's it's made me reflect on uh, you know we hear a lot about the incidents of the so-called Spanish flu after World War One. This was at an age where there were no digital platforms to communicate. So wonder what that must have been like for communities forced to isolate, 
uh, to try and protect themselves from that, that terrible scourge. Of course, different communities, they obviously communicated in different ways and were used to different kinds of distancing and isolation than, than we are. But um, interesting, interesting comparison. Um, Dr. Donilon, uh, let's, uh, let's bring you into the conversation. Um, uh, you're, a, you're an epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist. Um, people everywhere are uh, striving to do their part in uh, slowing and ultimately stopping the spread of this virus. Um, what are the, th the most important things you would call out for healthcare providers and for all of us to protect themselves and most of all to protect the people around us? I think the things that we're doing right now, uh, staying at home when we're supposed to, if we're not a critical or essential employee, we need to stay home. We need to isolate from others in our community, except for the most basic necessity in terms of having to go out for uh, food or, or prescriptions. Um, but we can uh, minimize those number of trips uh, by having some shelf-stable foods at home, having an adequate <clears throat> excuse me, supply of prescription medication. When we do have to go out, it's important that we keep in mind that concept of social distancing. I know it's been uh, a drum that's been beaten incessantly, but this is primarily a droplet spread uh, disease, in which case you need to be within six feet of someone uh, because the droplets will reach that far before they fall to the ground. It's important that uh, at this point, uh, if you are going out uh, for into places where you can't socially distance all the time that you wear, some sort of, of covering over your nose and mouth. It's a common misconception that that covering is for your own protection. But in truth, it's really for protecting other people. You're try trying to contain your droplets um, behind your nose and your mouth so that they don't get transmitted to someone else. And that really speaks to the possibility of someone being able to transmit the virus before they are overtly uh, symptomatic or even mildly symptomatic. Um, as we had talked about before, if someone coughs, uh, we want them to cough into their elbow. All little kids know that. They've been teaching that in school forever, uh, or at least into a tissue. Hand hygiene is so important. Um, before and after you prepare food, uh, after you um, use your hands for um, coughing or sneezing, um, it's very important to take advantage of telehealth, as, um, as we were just discussing, and also uh, delivery services. Um, you don't have to go out for every single thing. So the basic things that sound so simple uh, are really the ones that are the most impactful at this time. Right. So I want to return to your point about uh, masks. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about masks uh, the past couple of days, you know, rumors that there will be orders regarding uh, the wearing of masks, so on and so forth. But um, you've made an interesting point that uh, wearing a mask is, uh, in a way, signaling to others that you're concerned about their health by exactly. by protecting them rather than the other way around. That's exactly right. Um, what about other forms of protective, uh, so-called personal protective equipment, PPE? I mean, uh, do you think we're going to be uh, headed toward even more stringent orders in that regard, or do you think that's basically a clinical clinical issue? In the hierarchy of infection control, PPE is the least important of the three administrative mm -hmm. controls uh, and uh, engineering controls. PPE is the least important because it's the one that has to engage the user uh, in the most uh, consistent fashion. So when you go to a grocery shopping, you see people uh, wearing a mask and they're wearing gloves. The gloves are really, they think it's protecting themselves, but in fact, they're touching everything with the gloves, um, sometimes touching their face with the gloves. Uh, and that's a real problem. And that's a real problem. Right. And, and so, and, and then they forget that gloves are allowed to have little holes in them and they're not stainless steel. And so they're looking to the gloves as only being something that protects them, and then they forget that hand hygiene has such an important role in it. So just consistent hand hygiene um, is, is much more effective. Much than, more important. Mm -hmm. So in fact, rather than wearing gloves at the grocery store, it's about uh, using, using sanitizer when you touch something in the store, making sure, and not touching your face. Not you touching your face. That's probably one of the, the, uh, the secondary gain of wearing a surgical mask or a face mask out in public is that it does keep your hands off of your nose and your mouth. We we do this all the time, 
people don't realize it. If you sit around in a meeting when all this is said and done and you look around the room, there are lots of people that are adjusting their glasses, scratching their eyes, right. rubbing their nose. Right. We touch our faces all the time. All and the it's, time. A, it's a very difficult um, habit trying, to break. I've noticed the past couple of just trying to remember to sneeze into or cough into my elbow rather than into my hand. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother always taught me, you know, cover your mouth with your hand when you cough, right? That's, That's the polite true. thing to do. Yes. She didn't say anything about elbows. She'd hit me with her elbow when I didn't cough into my hand. Um, so let me ask you the the proverbial $64 million question that we ask of, of any epidemiologist these days. Have we hit the plateau? What are the data telling you uh, here on Long Island, here in, in New York State? Well, I can speak for um, what's I know what's going on intimately at our own hospital. Um, and first, I think before we, we talk about the plateau, I think a little bit more about the curve. People have seen the, the graphic where the epidemic curve is like that. And what we're trying to do is is flatten the curve, understanding that it's stretching it out. So a plateau can actually be a more protracted or prolonged um, time of activity. Uh, but the idea is to try to mitigate the impact on the healthcare system by not overwhelming it. Um, the other thing that I think is important for people to understand, like for example, we've been hovering around the same number of patients in the hospital um, over the last few days. But it's not a static concept. It's not a – if you if you plug a sink and, and uh, put, plug the drain and fill the sink up halfway and then stop, the sink is half full. No water is leaving and no water is coming in. But in the case of healthcare, what's happening is, at least at this point, and we're fortunate that that's the case, it seems that we're, we are discharging as many patients as we're actively admitting, which helps us to understand that there's still community spread going on, there's still illness that's occurring. It's just that we're at a, a, a balance at this point. And that's why it's so important to not pull back on the, on the restrictive parameters that we have now about staying home, working from home, schooling from home, because when we start to loosen up those parameters, we may in fact see the, the plateau be, begin to rise again. Yeah. We should understand that a plateau or a peak is what I always call a rear view mirror phenomenon. You know that you've, you're there when you've passed it when and you're starting it. to consistently go down. That's right. Um, Voss, let's, uh, let's draw you in here. I know that um, you, you're not quite uh, back working uh, full-time at the hospital yet, uh, uh, but uh, you're on your way there. Uh, tell me about what you've been involved with and what you're seeing in terms of uh, our managing our hospital and, in particular, our ICU capacity to meet you know, these increasing challenges with respect to what we hope is the plateau, as, as Dr. Donilon says, that we're, that we're trying to manage. Um, absolutely. So uh, I have been uh, one of the many people involved, obviously, in our whole surge plan and really readjusting how we've provided health care across the board to uh, obviously accommodate the surge of COVID patients we've had. At the same time, obviously, still providing our, you know, everyday services, being, you know, OBGYN, trauma, cardiac, or whatever it is. Um, one thing we did is we've almost tripled our ICU capacity, and we've done it in a relatively short time. Uh, we've done it with a lot of people involved, and we've done it in a very efficacious way. So as I mentioned earlier, we're still providing a high level of care. Um, despite my illness, I knew I couldn't be obviously at the hospital involving patient care, but I was at home. I was on multiple, you know, Microsoft meetings and conference calls, really, really um, being one of the, uh, per se, leaders in the ICU expansion um, to really develop everything else. And, you know, to sort of reiterate something I can, it's really amazing how the entire Stony Brook team, as well as the whole healthcare team throughout our community and our country, have really come together where we have patients, excuse me, uh, healthcare providers who aren't normally in, say, a medical subspecialty, who are contributing and providing care just for this uh, virus outbreak. And uh, it's, 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 uh, it's powerful to hear you say that. Can you also tell us a bit about the sharing of information and of best practices, not only among the, the Stony Brook medicine team, but indeed across teams, other, other medical communities here in New York or even, or even nationally and globally. Correct. And that's been also a very positive, incredible thing. You know, um, all of your um, different societies, uh, one of the main ones is Society of Critical Care Medicine, has really been very active in webcasts, recommendations, best practices. 
we've went as granular as we've actually been emailing people in China, you know, intensivists in China, their experiences. We've reached out to uh, Italy, South Korea, many other places. Uh, various committees have been formed so that we have standardized guidelines. They've been led at a very high level in our hospital so that we are providing care across uh you know, across the spectrum in a very consistent way. We've been more locally in touch with our uh, partners in the city, whether it's um, Health and Human Services, uh, whether it's Northwell, uh, whether it's the uh, Catholic Services, so that we are really trying to make sure that the best practices are disseminated, um, any new therapies that are coming, that they're being integrated in after they're properly vetted. Um, it, it's really been a Herculean task by so many people that uh, it's, it's great. It's it's interesting to to reflect on this uh, this digital world we live in has made it possible for us to socially separate and hopefully slow down the rate of infection. At the same time, it's facilitating uh, literally at the speed of light the sharing of information and best practice around Absolutely. the world to get on top of this pandemic. Um, I've also heard um, we've heard about this in the news at other at other facilities, but I've heard at uh, Stony Brook University Hospital, we are uh, celebrating successful discharges, um, maybe with music and uh, so forth. Is that true? Do you know? Correct. And and, and I'll be quite honest with you. Um, we are discharging people every day. Yeah. We are getting people of ventilators every day. And when we do that, it is tremendously uplifting, obviously not just for the patients and their families, but the staff. Right. It shows us that we are successfully fighting this virus, that we are making patients, even critically ill, gravely ill patients, that they are recovering from this. So we are disseminating every positive thing around. Um, it does help, you know, the staff as they're working extremely hard know why they work. I, I think this is a very uh, important point you, you've, you are bringing up, that in the midst of this pandemic, I think the public are getting a sense of how important it is for the medical practitioners themselves to be able to celebrate success and to, you know, understand the difference they're making. They're on the front lines. They're they're literally being traumatized themselves by these unbelievably difficult conditions. And uh, I think that's a, I mean, that's one of the silver linings in this cloud that people can appreciate that about the physicians, nurses, technicians, and and teams in our hospitals and nursing homes and other health facilities uh, for the, you know, being celebrated for the incredible work they're doing. Um, is there anything that, I'm curious, is there anything in particular you've been uh, hearing across these global digital networks that's been a, a revelation for us here at Stony Brook, Stony Brook, things that colleagues have shared with you either from other parts of the country or around the world that have been uh, uniquely helpful? Absolutely. And, and I think we can break it down to so many multiple areas. So whether it's how we um, ventilate patients in different modalities to what drugs we use to um, honestly even how you staff ICUs and you handle the expansion of patients, how we can integrate, as I said, services that normally don't provide these um, services or people that don't into this. So it's really been incredible how the resources are out there and vice versa. We are contributing every day and we're contributing our experiences and some of the things that we found to this pool to try to help everybody out. So it, it's definitely been a two-way street. And um, I think a lot of good stuff is coming out of Stony Brook itself to really help the healthcare community and the treatment of patients as our experience grows with the disease. Great, great. Um, uh, Dr. Noel, uh, let's uh, let's talk a bit about uh, you know clinical trials and other uh, and other research uh, going on. Uh, uh, Voss just gestured to that in his in his comments. Um, uh, I believe you were you were involved in a clinical trial yourself, and um, and maybe you can tell us a little more about how these studies are informing treatment and recovery and back to work plans for our patients. Absolutely, I. I think I want to start by just um, saying thank you to a lot of the researchers who've stepped up in this time. Um, one study that I myself am enrolled in is the rapid detection of antibodies for healthcare workers and their families. Um, one concern I had when I got sick was that I would um, infect my husband and there's no way for him to get tested because he wasn't symptomatic at the time. Um, we quarantined together. Uh, for 14 days. Um, 
this clinical trial allowed for not only myself to confirm that I had antibodies, that it wasn't just a false positive, but that he could get tested. And and, and thankfully, his test was negative. So um, there's the future of science. We need to understand who's immune, how does this uh, play out for our communities, and doing the work locally is so important. Um, so I commend the work by Dr. So, Elliot Bennett-Guerrero in that. And then there are other, the next phase of this is finding out who's immune and who can then donate plasma for convalescent serum. That's my hope in participating in these trials, that maybe my plasma can be of some good to other people. So maybe you, you could explain a little bit to our listeners and viewers. On the one side, the antibody tests, what they will enable in terms of who gets to go back to work and under what conditions. And on the other side, maybe uh, using plasma from uh, those like yourself who have developed antibodies, this becomes a treatment, uh, a, a treatment modality. So maybe you could explain that a little bit for our for our listeners and viewers. Sure. I mean, I'm under the impression that our symptoms should dictate uh, return to work. Right now, we say that if you are afebrile uh, for 72 hours, then that's kind of the marker, and that um, you know there are tests, there are false positives, false negatives, but you know, being able to determine that your uh, your blood, in this case a finger prick, could determine that you have signs of immunity is very reassuring. Um, and then the next phase is, what does that mean, right? So if I, if I have an increasing IgG or a marker that my immunity is building, am I, am, do I have some protection? Um, those are the things that need to be studied further. And um, so yeah, there we- is that aspect of potentially, yes, you could return to work if you have a certain IgG number, but what if we have an army of clinicians that have some sign of immunity and that we could potentially share that immunity with others? Right. So, and what we don't know yet is, is that immunity permanent? Is it temporary? Is it strong? Is it weak? We don't know enough about this virus really to say at present. Is that right? Yes. And um, I think that that's, that's something that we need to study longitudinally. One thing I'm very proud to say is that not only am I enrolled as a subject, but along with uh, Dr. Lily Mejica Parodi, we have just gotten approved by the RRB to do an aura ring study. So we are going to be um, giving out aura ring sensors to allow physicians to monitor their own um, temperature or sleep. Um, and over time, we could see who ends up having COVID and what if they ever get reinfected. So these are kind of important studies. Um, that are ongoing, and there are so many to name, but I highly recommend us supporting our researchers in this time. Yeah, and certainly there seems to be an enormous efflorescence of activity, obviously nationally and globally, but right here at, in Stony Brook Medicine. Dr. Donilon, um, maybe I could uh, invite you in here. I, I hear this phrase, uh, cytokine storm. I don't know what that means. <laughs> So maybe you could explain why that's being discussed right now, what its significance is for COVID, and um, what it tells us about this particular virus. Okay, so so cytokines are small proteins that are made in many cells and released from many cells in our system, including our immune cells. And they have a role in response against infection and in, in uh, inducing inflammation. So when uh, organisms such as the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus or influenza, for example, uh, reach the lungs, uh, they generate a local immune s- reaction. And as part of that local Im- immune reaction, um, it, there's release of cytokines from the immune cells, and there's been induction of inflammation. But on occasion, um, especially in people that have particularly robust immune processes, there's an overabundance of cytokines that are released. And so they make what should be localized uh, inflammation into a more widespread phenomenon. And that starts to work against the host. Um, Sometimes we work hard to make sure that they survive that, but uh, it's not always survivable. Uh, One of the studies that is being done at Stony Brook is to look at um, the receptor blockade for interleukin-6, which is one of the cytokines that's involved in this inflammation. And the hope is that we can try to dial back some of that inflammation, that cytokine storm, make it less impactful so as as to be able to allow the the patient to survive. So that's an important... uh, 
that's been that's considered to be important back even in the 1918 uh, Spanish flu, quote unquote. Uh, and it's certainly noted to be, and it can occur also in, in seasonal influenza as well, as well as some other uh, infections such as sepsis and whatnot. So it's an exciting area of research and hopefully it'll contribute to a better uh, outcome in some of our patients. Could you could you share with us? I'm sure many of our uh, viewers and listeners wonder, you know, why is it over the past decade or so, right, the proliferation of uh, of these new, what seemingly to us are, are new viruses, right, SARS, COVID, MERS, um, some with devastating results, and of course, right now we're in the midst of arguably the most significant global public health crisis in history. Um, why is that happening? How does it happen? Well, I think this, I think for all intents and purposes, COVID-19 is our 1918. Uh, Hopefully it's a once in a hundred years phenomenon, but we'll see. Many of these infections, if not most of them, actually occur. They start out as uh, as organisms that are inherent to uh, animals such as bats and uh, for MERS-CoV camels uh, and other, and for SARS-CoV it was civet cats. And when man is in close proximity to animals in their natural surroundings or when they bring him into uh, artificial uh, areas such as wet markets, as is the case in much of the globe, uh, not just in China, uh, there's opportunities for these viruses that are really quite comfortable in their animal hosts to try to jump ship and see how they do um, in the human. And most of the time, it doesn't work. They're not adapted to uh, life in a human. Sometimes they have an intermediary, and then from the intermediary, they learn to adapt, as, as is probably the case, for example, with MERS-CoV, which is probably a bat coronavirus, and then uh, managed to um, use as an intermediary camels. And so it takes uh, close contact with camels for humans to uh, develop MERS-CoV. For both SARS, uh, the original SARS in 2003, and MERS-CoV currently, the virus has not yet figured out how to easily and sustainably transmit from human to human. And so they're still stuck at that intermediary stage. But somewhere along the way, uh, SARS-CoV-2 not only jumped ship, and managed to successfully move from uh, animal to human, but then develop the capability of moving easily from human to human. Among humans, yes. Exactly. And that's really, I mean, the definition, uh, the the most stringent definition of a pandemic is a novel uh, organism, and this is the first uh, pandemic that's ever been not influenza, that is, to which we have no prior immunity, that transmits easily from person to person and spreads globally. And you mentioned uh, you used the phrase "wet markets" again for the sake of our uh, uh, for the sake of our listeners and viewers. You're referring to these uh, open air markets with live animals that are being bought and sold, and, and exactly. so forth. Exactly, and some of them are you know there there wouldn't normally be seen uh, or or interact with each other animals in terms of uh, being in the same uh, environment, nor would they have common uh, reasons to interact with people. But when you add that whole mix, it's almost like a primordial soup. Um, and then there, sometimes the conditions are not exactly what you might you know, envision that you would have in, a, in a, a country such as ours, where there's animals are bought, are bought and slaughtered uh, at the same time uh, in these markets. And the conditions aren't necessarily sanitary, and they're not necessarily spacious. They're often crowded. And these are opportunities uh, for zoonoses to continue to emerge. Right. And, and isn't it true that, for example, uh, HIV, uh, the human immunodeficiency virus, uh, hopped from, from species to, to humans? Is that correct? Correct. Right. Um, I know that there's been... I. I heard one report last week that there's been some calls from some leaders in the scientific community that these so-called wet markets be more rigorously regulated or even closed. Um, obviously, that raises a host of both political, maybe even legal, and certainly cultural questions. Yeah, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, markets are very culturally embedded uh, within communities, both small and large. And, and so it, it's never quite as simple as it sounds like it might be. Right. Right. Um, so uh, let me turn uh, back to to uh, um, uh, 
Dr. Noel and uh, and to Voss again just about their experience. I know our listeners and viewers are uh, probably eager to hear hear more. What would what would each of you share with uh, given your experience with uh, current COVID patients or uh, those who, of course, are striving to be safe from this disease or even worry that maybe they've contracted it? You know, I, I kind of thought of this as I went through this, you know, that um, understand. must have been terrifying. You must have been terrified. It, it was. And, you know, I mean, first of all, it's really, really nice, the outpouring of people that want to see how you're doing. And how they would ask every day, are you feeling better? Are you feeling better? But what you have to come to realize is this isn't a normal bug that you've gotten before. It's not influenza. And that it's really probably more of a war than a battle. Because, you know, with that second peak that I had when I went downhill a little bit, you know, and I was getting better, it can be very, very discouraging, you know. And it can be very discouraging because most of the other viruses I ever had, I was feeling better within a week. So... What I really learned is that you take it a day at a time. It's going to be what it's going to be. You do all the appropriate basic things as we talked about, you know, being keeping yourself hydrated, eating, doing good, what's called pulmonary toilet or pulmonary function things to keep your lungs well and to really take it a step at a time. Um, that really helped me get through it, realizing I can't say, well, I'll be better tomorrow because, you know, a lot of it's mental knowing it's going to take some time and, you know, at the end of the day, there is a very good healthcare system in place to help me if I needed to come to the hospital. But outside of that, I'm doing everything I can. Dr. Noel? Yes, absolutely. I would um, definitely agree with what Voss was saying. And I think an important um, aspect to this, as we all deal with these chaotic times, is hope, having the understanding that even in uncertainty, we can wish for the best. And then um, anyone who knows me well will think this is humorous that I'm uh, the advocate for patience, you know, have, being patient with oneself and um, huh. knowing that um, it is this one day at a time that'll make you healthier and recover faster. Um, so I think, I think uh, we, we're hearing more and more about this, about self-care. I mean, whether someone indeed has contracted this particular illness or not, just in these very uh, difficult and indeed tragic times, self-care, uh, maybe modulating the amount of negative information you're taking in every day, avoid the news. You know, you can get your news maybe once a day. Don't saturate yourself with it. Reach out to friends and loved ones. Share information. I, th I think people are learning that that takes uh, thought and conscious effort. Otherwise, you'll, you'll run the risk of getting quite, um, quite da depressed and, and upset about what's going on around us. Absolutely. And I expect this must be a real issue for all of your colleagues in the in university hospital, in the clinical setting, in other in other facilities. Um, let let me invite all three of you. Uh, I mean, what what would what would you like to say to your colleagues who are you know uh, waging this battle as you all are uh, every hour of every day? Um, I would say thank you. You know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Good place to start. <laughs> you know, because, um, you know, as I said, um, we've unified, not that we only was on a team, but we've unified like we've never unified before. And it's not the doctors and the nurses, it's the housekeepers, the respiratory therapists. It's everybody that is going to take care of these patients, you know, obviously taking on the fear, the anxiety of what the virus is, and obviously their own well-being and their family well-being. We've united together, um, the community uniting around us. Even, uh, I'm sure, as you've seen, some of the colored chalk that they've put around the entrances of the hospital with rainbows, thanking, you know, heroes walk through these doors. Um, so it would go on for everyone in the healthcare world, you know, talking to colleagues at Long Island Community Hospital with different healthcare systems. You know, we're all in this together. The community is behind us. The first responders, our EMS colleagues, our police colleagues, they're all behind us, and uh, the community is. So it's, it's, it's really thank you for the United, uh, you know, the Unified Front. You've touched on something I think it's worth emphasizing. It's the nature of this uh, pandemic. It's the nature of this crisis that the singular importance of everybody is demonstrated. Um, 
uh, because every aspect of the operations of a hospital are basically at the front line. You mentioned, you know, it's not simply physicians and nurses. It's not simply lab technicians. It's housekeepers. It's, uh, you know, facilities operators. It's people transporting the equipment and the supplies that are so crucial to your success. And I think we're seeing that you know, socially, uh, you know, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, the German chancellor, uh, Chancellor Merkel, gave a speech uh, before the national legislature in Germany where she said, our heroes right now in Germany are the, are the truck drivers, the grocery shopkeepers, you know, the pharmacy workers, because they're keeping the wheels going to enable people like all of you, the three of you on the front lines to care for patients and to, to try to secure the best possible outcomes. Truly agree. You know, you go to Stop and Shop and, you know, they're working behind the registers. They have their, you know, they they have their, obviously, their masks on. Right. Um, There is so much, so many people really working together to provide the essentials of what's required for society to exist. And they're doing it um, without, you know, with dealing with the anxiety and the fear. And they're doing it without hesitation. Right. So it really is very heartwarming to see how everyone's coming together. Uh, Dr. Donnellan, Dr. Noel, would you like to uh, chime in on this? Sure. Um, I think that um, the healthcare profession now um, is really um, in tumultuous times in terms of a lot of anxieties regarding taking on new types of roles, new new job functions, and it just uh, is quite amazing to see people step up and support each other. And I think um, the world is recognizing the importance of public health and health care. Um, and that ranges beyond, you know, there are a lot of people involved in making this health system work from the ground up, including our housekeeping all the way to our most senior doctors. And um, that solidarity is really inspiring. And so I want to thank those people who step up every day. And, and I have to say, I echo my colleagues in terms of appreciation for um, the the vast the vastness of the support at every level, I've said this to others before, and I, I truly mean it. This is not something we can get over. We can't go under it. We can't go around it. We just have to go through it. But I can't imagine wanting to go through this with anyone else and in any other place than my colleagues at Stony Brook and Suffolk County and New York State and the people from top to bottom who have spent countless hours um, making sure that we can provide the very best patient care that we can be expected to do. And, and, and I'm very, very proud to be part of this team. Let me, uh, um, let me draw the, we have a few minutes left. I wanna draw the three of you um, into a, a, a concluding conversation uh, well, first, about, about information. What advice um, could you share with our listeners and viewers um, about where they should and can turn for the latest news, the latest advice, the latest developments in constructive ways? We know there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I just mentioned a moment ago, we don't want people to overexpose themselves to a lot of negativity. That That's not constructive either. But people do want transparent and accurate information. What advice can you give them, give our uh, listeners and viewers about how to remain informed in a in a productive and healthy way in all the meanings of that word? Um, I'll just bring up two sources and obviously let my colleagues comment. Uh, obviously, you know, your primary care doctor, your primary care practitioner, they're, they're very good resources. They're for, here for you throughout. So, you know, the internet can be an unfiltered source, obviously, um, as well as the news and other places. So the people that you trust, the people that know you, you know, I've talked to many people who've gotten sick. They've called their primary care doctors. They've helped with the reassurance and they've helped out. And, and as far as the Internet, I'll be honest with you, the CDC website is incredible. It has a good resource for healthcare providers, for the public. And obviously, it's a very well-established resource that people go to, which I found to be very informative. And I referred, you know, uh, various different agencies and, and people to look at it because I think it is, you know, one of the more authoritative sites. Right. It, it, internationally recognized as one of the major sites. Correct. I would also um, support, because um, I've, I've used this myself and referred others, uh, stonybrookmedicine.edu. Uh, it has place for not only the links, as Foss had mentioned, to places like the CDC, which has 
excellent um, information for both healthcare workers and not. But also uh, it links up with uh, people who have perhaps they're pregnant and they have questions. It uh, it helps them f- seek out telehealth opportunities. There's a, a corona hotline for people, not just who are patients at Stony Brook, but those who are concerned that they're having symptoms and wondering if they need to be need to be uh, tested. Uh, and and uh, there's just a, an enormous amount of facts without fear, which I think is uh, something that is so important to latch onto uh, at this particular time. And um, to dovetail off that, I think uh, the New York State Department of Health uh, resources have really uh, ramped up. They are very transparent with a lot of the data that's coming through, and so I commend those efforts. Um, by our Department of Health. And on the other side, um, in my telehealth world, for any of the clinicians or administrators of the health hospital system, looking at the telehealth work aids that have been prepared by teams like, like Laura McNamara's team and Elisa Betancourt, you know, th- these laws in telehealth are changing moment by moment. And we have a dedicated uh, army really trying to uh, hone down what these policies mean and how they translate for our doctors. So I wanted to acknowledge that work. Very important work. One one final question for you all, and I know this is uh, this is not a question uh, you can answer definitively, but it's it's the the question on everybody's minds. Uh, where is this headed? In given the information that you're able to digest so far, um, and to the best of your ability, uh, fully acknowledging that this is speculation, where do you think we are? In I, and when I say we, I'm I'm speaking now of Eastern Long Island, our community. Uh, in a month, in two months, three months, people, everyone's wondering, you know, uh, what to expect in the next few months. Do you have a sense? What are you, what are you comfortable saying at this point? Obviously, I believe, I'm going to listen to what Dr. Donlin says. She's yes. the epidemiologist. Yeah, that's right. She's our epidemiologist <laughs> so, so I would defer to her. But from my perspective, I think we're still very early on in this. I think we've made huge strides by flattening the curve and flattening the infection rate that our healthcare system is by no means overwhelmed. And we're still functioning, as I said many times, at a very high level and providing the right care. Um, and I would also echo what Dr. Donlin said earlier on, that all of our administrative uh, social distancing, um, obviously the things the governor is doing, uh, closing obviously spaces where people can congregate very closely, I think it needs to be continued uh, because this is going to be somewhat prolonged. But I defer to Dr. Donlin. I think that's the first, Jim. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I think that it's important for us to not be complacent. Uh, I think that uh, for so many people that have been felt like they've been at home, they've been deprived of things such as like my kids are missing out on their last semester of senior year of high school, so there's no prom. Uh, there may not be a graduation or or a spring concert. Uh, I, I think people have to just, as as my colleagues were saying about getting better from COVID-19, we have to take it day by day. We have to be cognizant that we each have a role in this process to try to get things under control, to hopefully see the numbers uh, continue to flatten and then decrease, and then to understand that normal is going to look different Um, It's not going to be flicking a switch and suddenly everything is back to the way it was. Things are going to have to gently open up incrementally. And I think it's so important that we have and we continue to work towards uh, increased access to not only testing, uh, but not one that takes a week. So, for example, my colleague waited a week uh, for her test to come back, but also uh, a point of care testing. And we're going to have to aggressively also... Uh, make sure that people are isolating and not and not flaunting the the norms uh, because we want it to be over. Uh, unlike unlike influenza, we don't have antivirals that are uh, readily available. Uh, vaccine trials have yet to um, be widespread or proven, and this may be something that rears its head again when we all congregate back as a as a campus. Uh, when school begins. And, and so I, I, I don't know what the summer's school is going to look like. And I don't know what, what fall is going to look like for my kids going to college. Are they still going to be at home? It's possible. 
Um, but I right. think that we have to trust that we are so much further ahead than where we were even 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, and we'll have a lot of lessons to be learned as we go through this. Yes. And um, uh, to take a different spin on this as an occupational health doc and preventive medicine physician, um, I worry a lot about our, our fellow colleagues. And so I think as we move towards this crisis, just making sure that we're taking care of our own, uplifting each other and, uh, you know, taking the best precautions to keep ourselves safe. Uh, I think that's really important. All, all very important points. Um, we're we're just out of time. I want to thank Dr. Susan Donnellan, Dr. Kimberly Noel, Dr. Jim Voswinkel for being with us today. Uh, a very informative and indeed inspiring conversation. Um, I want to say to the three of you, and you know, through you to all of your colleagues uh, and teammates in Stony Brook Medicine, uh, the work you're doing is widely noticed. I know. Almost on a daily basis, I'm getting emails and texts from people around the country who are being made aware of what you're doing through news outlets or professional communications. Uh, you're celebrated, you're admired, and we're all inspired by the work you're doing. We can never thank you enough, and we wish you every success uh, in waging war uh, against, this, against this pandemic. Thank you for being with us, and uh, many thanks to our listeners and viewers uh, for uh, being part of this Beyond the Expected podcast.